Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. studios of the Modern School of Film. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, just fucking teach. Writer, sleigh bell, teacher, Alexis Krauss is with us. Welcome. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I am the founder and the lead instructor of the Modern School of Film. With you on Murmur Radio, murmurradio.com. Social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. You can and you must and you should, really, download the show, subscribe, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Tune in radio. Ooh, never forget Tune in radio. I love Tune in radio. ModernSchoolOfFilm.com is also kind of the mothership of all things Modern School of Film. We're here, there, we're everywhere. We're with you now. Welcome back to Murmur. Welcome to Murmur. Today on the show, Force of Nature, that's a descriptor I actually left out of the opening. Force of Nature, writer, sleigh bell, teacher, Alexis Krauss. Teacher is the one I want to circle with my red pencil, as any good teacher would or bad teacher would, depending on who's getting circled. And the topic today, man, I could talk to Alexis about any of those things, but today's topic is learning to teach. One of my external internal sacraments that I tell all my students, whether it's the modern school film or elsewhere, is that you don't need a school to be a student. And I would extend that with you today for Alexis. You don't need a school to be a teacher. Alexis, she is a teacher. She has teaching degrees. She's taught in brick and mortar schools. She now literally teaches outdoors. And, you know, teaching can extend anywhere and everywhere. And it should. It's an art. It's an act. It's a thing. We can teach. We can learn outside of these halls. But I'm, I'm really curious about the halls of teaching. And someone like Alexis, who, who, who's been in those halls, she literally knows the smell of those halls. It's fascinating how middle schools and high schools and kindergartens have smells. And I'm, I'm, not, not, and I'm not blaming that on the students entirely. But it is fascinating. There is an aroma to the environment of teaching that's part of teaching. It's like, you can't work in a hospital and not be able to deal with the smell of a hospital. 
a bad teacher is like a bad doctor. There is a really firm comparison, a deeper comparison to be made between hospitals and schools, also bureaucratically and administratively. My brother is a physician, and I'm sure he's nodding listening to this somewhere. The academy in the halls of medicine and the towers of these institutions are similar in in many ways. We'll reserve that for another episode. Today, I want to talk about the musculature, the ligaments, the cartilage that goes into the act of teaching, the pitching and catching, the giving and receiving of being a teacher. There are some smooth lines to this topic, and there are some uh, jagged lines. The jagged lines, I always start with the jagged lines. Let's talk about the smooth lines. Teaching is amazing. Teaching is fun. I love teaching. I am a teacher. Sometimes I use the word educator when I'm teaching outside of the four walls of a traditional school, which I do a lot of, whether it's a movie theater or performing arts center or an art gallery. So those audiences don't feel too squirrely or too much like students. But the joke is they are students. And it's not a joke. Our audiences are our students. You are my student as I see it. And I mean that in the best possible way. I don't mean it in a condescending way. I never teach unless I want to find something out myself. I think Murmur is a classroom. For me, it is. I hope it is for you too. So Alexis is a guest instructor, but Alexis also has some traditional bona fides to add to the conversation. And I love those bona fides as well. Today, I do want to talk to her about the rudiments of learning to be a teacher. What are the advantages to training as a teacher, getting certified, getting degrees, obtaining a master's degree as a teacher, a PhD as a teacher? These are things I think about a lot because I think it's a reference point for the state of education. I won't lay too heavily on those piano keys today. I'll spare you that because I want to talk about everything that brings us into the classroom, everything that brings the teacher into the classroom. Alexis had an amazing path. She actually wanted to be an educator, it seemed, (laughs) until a fateful dinner with her mom at a Brazilian restaurant (laughs) around 2007, 2008. Her waiter, Derek Miller, would eventually be her recording partner. (laughs) That's a pretty cool story. (laughs) Derek and she formed the Sleigh Bells. That's an amazing story, almost fairy tale like Today's class is not about her musical history as much as it's to awaken awaken and open those synapses of Alexis that is a teacher is an educator. Once a teacher, always a teacher. Once an educator, always an educator. Alexis is doing really interesting, innovative teaching in new spaces, outdoor spaces. I've been finding this trend in in marrying the outdoors to education, getting students literally out of their head, out of their space, off their devices. And Alexis is doing amazing work in this field, literally in this field. She's a rock climber and a registered hiking guide. She helped spearhead a group called Young Women Who Crush. It's a boot camp lesson course where Alexis instructs women how to climb at this climbing gym in Long Island City. I know climbing in the outdoors and nature has been a lot of her emotional, artistic, personal growth backstory. She once said she gets the same high from climbing as she does from performance. So I want to talk to her about the new innovative advantages of those forms of teaching because there are many. Learning to teach. How much of learning to teach is on the job? I'll calibrate it at about 150,000%. How's that? (laughs) I'm curious to have her reflection. Having had formal teacher training, I have not had formal teacher training. I've learned on the job. I think about formal teacher training a lot, but I think on the job training, even if you've had formal training, is so much a part of it. Being there on the ground, in the room, in the halls with the students, having the dialogues, jumping off the script of your curriculum or your game plan, that's where the teaching happens. It's Mike Tyson. Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. (laughs) Mike's punched a few people in the mouth. (laughs) What do they do next? (laughs) 
So I'm curious, having the privilege of training, having the investment of teacher training, where has she really learned to teach? It's probably somewhere in between being taught how to teach and teaching herself. I always find with new teachers coming up to me that time, time management is key. It's less the social volleyball that concerns them and the, and the course management. It's, it's working with time, running out of things to say or not, how much content to provide. I can give them examples or parameters, but it's never going to be the same because it really does relate to how we communicate, how fast or slow. And that's part of learning too. How we teach is also depending on who we're teaching, how they're learning, what age they are, what schooling they are. Now, Alexis has mostly taught uh, younger kids, middle school, high school in the South Bronx through Teach America. So it'll be interesting. But she has been a university student learning teaching. So I'll be curious to see all that, all that subterfuge. And if you spin that subterfuge of all the education, all the inputs, all the data, all the surveys, all the reading and research and book learning she's done, how that served her well or sandbagged her as a teacher. Teaching is a petri dish. Teaching is a woods. We're navigating this together. One of the things I find curious as a teacher is students want to know where you're going with the class. My first instinct is to say, I don't know. Isn't that fun? But students want security. Students want to trust you. But once they trust you, you can get lost with them. And if you're honest with a student, say, we're now lost together. Let's find our way out together. You can empower them. How did I learn that? Just by failing in the classroom and being in the classroom. And talking in the classroom and listening in the classroom, learning to teach. Today is not about damning degrees. I often think, should I go back and get a degree? What is the deepening of study one acquires by getting a degree in a field and then applying that to teaching? I think about that a lot, master's and PhD, learning to teach. You are a delivery system for information. You're translating information, but you also have to be fair. So even if the information is unique and endemic to your experience, I think you owe it to the students to say that. And it's often used as an insult when a teacher is called an activist or an advocate. My response is, duh. (laughs) Everything is subjective, right? Oh, you're an advocate. Don't listen to that teacher. They're advocating. Well, they're, they're advocating because teachers are editors. They're choosing what to display and what not to display. Textbooks are editors. Everything could be said and unsaid. What it boils down to me is the fairness of the delivery and the both sides of the delivery and being very clear when something is through your experience and your lens or that of a Vox Populi or that of a Vox Historic. They ask me why I teach. One of the reasons I do is every day is new. (laughs) I never teach something, even if it's something I've taught before. I won't teach it again unless there's something I want to learn now because it's a collaboration. Bad example alert, but I was thinking of something Phil Jackson said about coaching Michael Jordan. He said, you don't coach Michael Jordan, you collaborate with Michael Jordan. I feel like that too. Collaboration doesn't mean being submissive to students. You need to be the leader. The teacher needs to be the leader. But you can be a leader and a follower at the same time. You can walk side by side or maybe a half step ahead of everything. That's what a smart teacher does. I'm acquiescing to the standard of the process, but I'm slightly ahead. One of the reasons I like to bring guests on this show and address something with them in their resume, in their trophy case that they don't always get to talk about is, I want to learn something new about them. Yes, all the guests have traditions and resumes and histories I know beforehand, obviously, because I got to know where to look to invite them. (laughs) But I also want to know something new. And today, ironically, with Alexis Krauss, we're going to find, I want to find out something new about her. I want to find out something new about a craft I love teaching because she's done it in ways I haven't done it. She's trained in ways I haven't trained and she's learned in ways I haven't learned. 
and she has something to give me through this chat. I will learn something, I assure you. <laughs> and theoretically, you're not listening unless there's something you want to learn. So today we're going to learn about learning to teach. See all the meta in today? <laughs> meta, I hardly knew her. Okay, I'll be here all week. Well, at least I'll be here the next hour. And so will you, hopefully. Today on the show, learning to teach, Alexis Krauss. Now this. Casey Jones was a son of a bitch. Casey Jones was a son of a bitch. Rolled his train in a 30-foot ditch. Rolled his train in a 30-foot ditch. Came on out with a stick in his hand. Came on out with a stick in his hand. Said, listen, ladies, I'm a hell of a man. Said, listen, ladies, I'm a hell of a man. Went to his room and lined up a hundred. Went to his room and lined up a hundred. Swore up and down, he fucked everyone. Swore up and down, he fucked everyone. Fucked 98 to the ball turned blue. Fucked 98 to his ball turned blue. And he backed off, jacked off, and fucked the other two. He backed off, jacked off, and fucked the other two. Wave goodbye to your buddies, Mayo. Oh, I forget you don't have any buddies. Only customers. You having fun, mayonnaise? Yes, no! Don't hear you! Yes, no! All right! Uh, I'll give me six to ninety. Uh, hey, Mayo. Why don't we quit this little charade of yours over a couple of beers over PJs? Come on, man. You're about as close to being office material as me. Sir, this candidate believes it would make a good officer. No way, Mayo, no way. You don't give a shit about anybody but yourself. And every one of your classmates knows it. You think they trust you behind the controls of a plane that they'd have to fly in? Come on, man, I think you was the kind of guy that would zip off one day in my F-14 and sell it to the Cubans, right? No, sir. No, sir. I love my country. Sell it to the Air Force, Mayo. Sell it to the Air Force. Talk to me. Now, why would a slick little hustler like you want to sign up for this kind of abuse anyway? I want to fly jets, sir. My grandmama wants to fly jets. I want it since I was a kid. We're not talking about flying here. We're talking about character. I've changed. I've changed since I've been here. Hell, you have. I've changed, sir. No. You just polished up your ass a little bit. You just shined it up. Now, tell me what I want to hear. I want your D-O-R. No, sir. I want your D-O-R. I ain't gonna quit. Spell it. D-O-R. I ain't gonna quit. Yeah, then you can be free and you and your daddy can get drunk and go hole chasing again, huh? No, sir! D-O-R. I ain't gonna quit. Right, then you can forget it. You're out. Don't you do it. Don't you. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. I got nothing else. All right, Mayo. In feet.
So here on Murmur, education is our favorite topic, but please don't spread that around. Today we want to look at education kind of in a more granular way. Uh, so we needed to bring in a guest who has been a teacher and who has degrees. Not only does she have degrees, but she's several degrees cooler than me. She is a climber, a registered hiking guide, a sleigh bell, a Jersey girl, a Def Leppard fan, though I think those two are linked. I think that's legally, like it's a binding contract. Uh, but she's also a licensed teacher. Uh, one day we'll have her on to explain her crush on the film Legend. Until such time, please welcome to Murmur, Professor Alexis Krauss. Hey, Alexis, welcome to the show. I think that was the, uh, the best introduction I've ever received. Thank you for that. You know, actually, that's the whole talk. So I just, I wanted to, okay, great. I just wanted to show you all <laughs> my research. <laughs> hey, you know, the first question is, are you working hard and are you being nice? And we'll tell everyone what that means. But can you answer that? Am I working hard and am I being nice? Uh, yes, always. Work hard, be nice. Whoop, whoop. That, was, um, <laughs> that was my classroom. That was my classroom mantra. So I think it is a very solid, solid mantra for both young people, children, and adults. Work hard, be nice. I mean, what other ways do we want to kind of treat others? And And working hard is certainly the way that I personally find so much strength and purpose in my life and, and treating other people with respect and, and dignity and, and just kind of digging deep to find that kindness every day is is something that I think is uh, is pretty invaluable to our society and to us as individuals. So, yeah, work hard, be nice. How dare you say those things? Well, for, you know, for, <laughs> for, for from a teacher to a student, is it a practice, you know, in the sense of uh, when I teach the first day, I go over kind of the emotional and technical rules of the class, you know, so I guess when do you say those things? Because I think it's a beautiful practice, uh, work hard, be nice. Do you literally externalize it? Is it written somewhere? How do you first introduce that idea to your students? Or how did you? My tense will flip-flop a little bit, and I apologize. No, that's fine. You are definitely bringing me back. I was I was formally in the classroom from 2007 to 2009. So this is going a long, a long, long way back. But I do still work with children in an outdoor education capacity on a regular basis. So I... I run a lot of youth programs with with kids outside and and um, both in the backcountry and on rock climbing trips. So I, I still very much bring that classroom management philosophy to the outdoors now. Um, but you know, I learned a lot from my first year to my second year of teaching, um, and <laughs> what I was able to do. I could hear it in your voice. Year. I know that. I know that. Yeah. The, the, the exhalation in the sentence. I know that. Anyway, <laughs> right. go on. Sorry to right. interrupt. <laughs> right. No. Um, I think. I think for me, getting kids to be excited about learning and to feel really invested in their own personal goals was what I found to be the key to having a, success, a successful classroom. Kids needed to be excited to walk in and say, work hard, be nice, woo-woo, and chant it. And, <laughs> awesome. and I had lots of chants and, you know, we are the college class of 2021, 2021, things like that. 
but but those those things need something, right? Well, like, wait a second, wait a second. Is, to... Was that song sung to the tune of "We Will Rock You"? I just want to, yes, in case I have to pay for licensing on that, just to keep. Yes, it was. <laughs> okay, yes, sorry. In case to clear that. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was, you know, banging on desks and and things. So, you know, kids kids need. I, I taught fourth grade, so they're young enough. They they want to be silly. They want to be goofy. They want to laugh. But they also are incredibly bright and precocious of that age and curious, and and they know what those words mean. So, you know, they were able to think long term about what it meant to go to college and and what that would look like for them coming out of a classroom in the South Bronx where they were immigrants and dealing with a lot of obstacles, especially socioeconomic ones. Like, what was that path to getting to college going to look like? We talked about everything from the challenges of, of very ingrained institutional inequalities in our system and how those would present themselves as challenges as they kind of went from elementary to middle school to high school and then what the college loan process was like and how that was often, you know, preventing people to have access to education. So we thought about these things, you know, really big picture grand strategies. And I think that was really important because the same thing, like, you know, work hard, be nice. Like, well, what what does that mean? What does it mean to work hard? You know, are you working hard because someone tells you to work hard? Are you working hard because you feel obligated to work hard? Are you working hard because you genuinely want to learn and you genuinely love learning? And it's not until a child genuinely loves learning and they connect with their teacher in a way that's personal, where they feel valued. I mean, I wanted my kids to respect me, but I really wanted them to love me. And and that doesn't come from a place of, like, of neediness, but just truly of, you know, my when I was a child, the teachers that I felt really understood me were the ones that were able to unlock something in me that changed my life forever. So that idea of working hard and, and, and doing it because you love it, because you have this intense motivation to learn and to, and to grow your mind and to be a leader in your community and, you know, to be nice, to understand that, you know, we, we were in this sacred classroom space together. I mean, they were... They were never students. They were always scholars. You know, I always wanted them That's to awesome. feel elevated. I always, That's awesome. Yeah, I always wanted them to feel like our our classroom was the sanctuary. It was some place where we came together to be better than than the rest of the world. <laughs> Speaking with Alexis Kras about it's almost like a bunker mentality, and I always, I sometimes fall into it with the problems of a school because you know schools have their own systemic thing, and as you say, and you know a class. Yeah can and but doesn't have to represent the school in a sense you know you you can't I never want to bullshit students so if they tell me about a shitty policy in the school I can't just kind of whitewash it away and say okay well anyway what were we talking about you know you have to it's a working laboratory no matter what the subject is one thing I wanted to say that I think people need to hear again uh, I love the way you said it I'm not going to say it as well but I think you have to love to teach a bad teacher is as scary as a bad doctor no (laughs) And let's go back a little bit in terms of the training and talk a little bit about uh, and correct all the record uh, if anything's off. Talk a little bit about studying in preparation to be a teacher at Marymount Manhattan College. The, the history books tell me that you were a poli sci and international studies uh, major, right? Is that is that accurate? Correct. And, and it, when did the light bulb go, uh, go on? Say, hey, teaching, or was that even before you went to college? When did you get the inspiration to maybe want to pursue teaching? Throughout high school, I was involved in various 
mentorship programs. I lived in a small community on the Jersey Shore, and and we had a, a an influx of Latin Americans coming to the community. And so as a result, we now had this population of English language learners coming into the elementary school, and there was no system for them. There was no curriculum. There was no ESL program. There was no bilingual education program. So I was studying Spanish in high school, and and my, you know, the, the school board's answer to meeting the needs of these, you know, incoming immigrant populations was, well, let's have the high school kids mentor them. And, you know, they're, oh, wow. they're studying Spanish, so <laughs> right. have them, right? So, no, so, I mean, so that was my first introduction to really working with children and, and starting to think about teaching strategies and starting to really understand how kids learn, especially how how English language learners learn. And then when I went to college, I initially went to school for fine arts, um, and then I transitioned out of the fine arts program for because I was interested in pursuing academics. And I was working in music that whole time, but I, I decided, you know what, I, I, I really... I'm so challenged and stimulated by these conversations around international human rights and public policy, and and um, so that's when I stepped into the you know international studies program. And I had an incredible professor, or a few incredible professors, but one professor in particular, Radhika Balakrishnan, who I'm still close with. She does a lot of UN style work and NGO work, looking at economic, social, and cultural rights. And so, you know, the right to education, the right to health care. How do we create a culture where education is valued as a human right? And so I started doing a lot of research for her, specifically around education. And then I kind of had this crisis of like, okay, I can pursue this academic path, right? I can pursue, I can pursue this kind of macro path where I'm talking about education and, and talking about kids and trying to understand, you know, these policies that can be put in place to, you know, to narrow the 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 education gap between elites and and the middle class or you know I I can look at all of these these access issues and try and understand them and try and understand how how you know economic policies will make a difference or I can just fucking teach so <laughs> that was I, I think of, that was an early Nike slogan just fucking teach you know it's funny <laughs> you uh, it should have been your brain is a magnet it's amazing how you deconstruct and reconstruct in real time you know hey just talking to you but i can sense the wheels were turning in the present and the future tense and i think that's how teachers and human beings hopefully navigate but it's you're a wonder i mean i'm, I'm just ch- connecting with you for the first time I, you know just to break in a little bit although i can honestly listen to that for hours we're, we're, I, I i you know was wondering about you know your choice of study there's this ye olde uh, trope of studying education, like getting an education major, on top of right. all of your other uh, isms, did you ever think, I want to study teacher craft? You know, I didn't think too much about studying education. And it wasn't until I was thrown into Teacher America, which is the program that I became a New York City public school right. teacher through. Right. Um, it wasn't until that and my sort of crash course in in strategy, in 
in really understanding different learning styles and really understanding how to best teach um, that I became fascinated with that element of, of education. For me, I was coming at it much from, I don't want to say a, a quixotic perspective, but from the perspective of closing the achievement gap. We need people who care in classrooms and who are so motivated and are going to work so hard to do anything that they can to put in the time to, you know, to create this change that will ultimately create systemic change. And I was coming from it from that perspective. And then, of course, I realized I was completely in over my head just in terms of like, well, how do you actually teach geometry in Spanish to a fourth grader who has, you know, poor native language skills. Like all of the challenges of unlocking actual strategies for teaching became very, very important to me. And I then would do a lot of reading and a lot of study, but I definitely came at it from the perspective more of like, like I was saying before, you know, I can, I can sit and I can work on policy or I can just get in the classroom and have children in front of me and say, okay, we're going to take you from, you know, a first grade reading level in September and we're going to get you to a fifth grade reading level in June. And this is how we're going to do that. And everything yeah. kind of was filled in from there. I, I love that approach. Shall we, you know, study the peanut M&M or shall we just be the peanut M&M? I mean, in the sense of that's a really stupid uh, metaphor. But what I'm saying is, you know, now we're requiring teachers to have the pelts on the wall to teach rather than the passion. What did you privilege in your evolution? The desire or the skill set? I really, it, it, it's hard to say. I mean, they're, they're certainly not mutually exclusive. I mean, right. I, I think the desire to be there, the commitment to be there is the most important thing. And understanding, like with any job, that you're really going to do well, you know, you're not going to have, you're not going to come in at 8 a.m. and leave at 3 p.m. <laughs> and if that is how you're thinking about the job, you're never going to be a good teacher. And this is for teachers that have been teaching for 20 years. There's yeah. no, yeah. there's nothing convenient about being a teacher. <laughs> your kids, your kids need you when they're, you know, doing their homework at 8 or 9 p.m. and they need you when they're coming in at 7 a.m. because their parents are dropping them off before work and they haven't had breakfast. Like, right. there's, there's no, you know, so I think that desire to be there, that commitment to be there is, in my opinion, the most important thing. And that investment in the kids, that investment in doing whatever you have to do to ensure that their needs are being met is absolutely, in my opinion, the most important thing. And and you can be an excellent teacher. You can really understand your methods and practices, and, and you can think about it through an academic lens and through the end, you know, the lens of, of theory. And, and that's, that's incredibly important. Those concrete skills will absolutely translate. But if that desire isn't there, then in my opinion, you are just going to fall completely flat. And classroom management for me was really the key, right? That like before there was any learning that was taking place, there was a conversation about how we were all going to behave and how we were going to treat each other. I love that. You know, it's, it's one thing just to say no. You know, it's the same thing with the good parenting. I mean, you can't you can't just say, you know, because I said so. And certainly the same thing in the classroom. And for me, it was all about positive reinforcement. Like, 
I, you know, was all about like, okay, well, you're going, you know, if you if you make this decision, this is going to be the consequence, and you're not going to be able to partake in this incredible thing that you want to be involved in. And and so it was all about, you know, positive reinforcement and motivating. And wow. but I will say that, like, sorry, because I was a bilingual teacher, and because my school didn't quite have an ESL program and they didn't quite have a bilingual immersion program. It was kind of somewhere in between. And because I had kids who, like I was saying before, you know, they came from the DR on September 15th and they had no native language reading and writing skills. And then I had kids who had been in the program and the English language learner program since they were in kindergarten and were being kept in the program because they were pushing up the school scores. So I had this like incredible range where I had to differentiate instruction for everything. And so that's when actually understanding, okay, how do you teach phonics to a child, right? I mean, those are things that like, they're not intuitive, especially when you're an adult. Thinking about teaching phonics is not something that comes naturally. (laughs) I just love the word phonics. I I miss (laughs) the word phonics. Anyway, like PH, (laughs) it's almost like Phoenix. I I always loved that word as a kid, like phonics. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. It's like your students sounded incredibly brave and you're incredibly brave and and adept. What did what were you learning from them during that time? I mean, this is a 15-hour answer, and I don't mean to be uh, insulting. I'm just saying I could only imagine. But, you know, as you say, 5 a.m. makes fools of us all. You know, getting on a subway to teach every day, 5 a.m., or, you know, the human parts of it. I love how you're reflecting the human parts of it. What were you learning from the students? What's always impressed me about kids is their their flexibility and their ability to transition from one state of mind to another instantaneously. They're they're so elastic. Um, and I think <laughs> as adults we sometimes forget that and we forget that all it takes is one tiny experience and they're fully immersed. And they're there, and they're ready for you to take them on this journey. Mm-hmm. Just to transition slightly, but I oh. frequently find myself having conversations with people about about kids and technology, and how you know well, these kids would just much rather be on their phones, and they would much rather be, you know, existing in this kind of other universe. And and I find that when I have kids outside, you know, we we ran a, a climbing trip about a week ago, and one of my girls said. You know, looking at nature is so much better than looking at your phone. <laughs> I love that. And, oh my gosh! You know, so that just gave I me goosebumps. Like, so, right? Yeah, totally. And like <laughs> that is a perfect embodiment of like you could have a child who comes in in the morning and and hasn't eaten breakfast and has dealt with you know a, a pretty chaotic home life, whether they're coming from you know a domestic violence shelter or they're coming from you know, very little night's sleep, whatever it is. I mean, I had kids with big challenges, really big challenges. And they would come to the classroom and they would just have this ability to sit down on the rug and we would start a read aloud. And they would they would sit up, they would listen, they would ask and answer questions, they would nod and they would track the speaker. Right? That was that was one of my big strategies with them. And all of a sudden the morning and on all this chaos in their life and these challenges that they faced just melted away. And there they were just sitting there listening to me read. 
and and visualizing and closing their eyes and and using all of these strategies and that ability for them just to like transport themselves and connect. And there were so many times when I realized that like, okay, I have the power to do that, right? I have the power to get these kids invested. It's it's on me. It's on me and my ability to make a connection with them because they're there. They're ready. They're hungry for this. Yeah. This idea that kids are just, you know, that they're indifferent and, you know, they're impossible to manage. It's like, no, you you have the ability to just unlock that and get I agree. them to where I they agree. need to be and want to be. Yeah, and, and that always impressed me, that, that ability to just come, you know, to like, you know, and, and talk about the difference between like what's in your classroom and what's in the rest of the school building, you know, coming back from a completely chaotic lunchtime where there's right. kids being screamed at, right. you know, and then suddenly they come back and like they're back in their sanctuary and they're ready. They're ready to learn. They want to learn. Yeah. Yeah, we're speaking with Alexis Krauss. And and again, to contextualize, you were teaching in the South Bronx. Uh, and again, not to stereotype, I'm from New York, so I, I know, you know, the, the, those schools are that can be really tough. You know, public, New York public yeah. school systems, but any public school system, any city, you know, it's not to generalize or be too specific. But it's funny when you think about teachers, the, the stationary object are the students. I, I think a lot of teachers think, no, I am the sun. They are the planets that revolve around me. I think you've got to go get them you know you've got to you've got to work those muscles of whatever you've learned or not learned and find the way to them because they're the stationary object again not to sound too philosophical but but speaking of philosophy as we get into our midbeat here two two things you should write a book i was going to say this at the end but now i'm ready to publish it for you good god you should write a book about teaching honestly i mean i think you could hold forth on any subject um let's get to some of the other stuff is teaching an art are teachers artists? I think so. I think that a beautifully run classroom is has has this, you know, much like a piece of music, much like a painting, much like a, a, an incredible work of literature. You have these. You run through these these moments. There's there's character arcs. There's this journey. There's this you know, crescendo and decrescendo and there's, you know, so to think about in terms of... I, I, lo- I love what you're saying. You don't have to qualify by by laughing. I mean, I mean you're laughing, okay. enjoying it. I just don't want you to think you're sounding overly poetic. I think about this thing okay. daily. But no, react how you want. I just don't want you to think you're sounding inflated here. I love it. I'm like eating it up. Go on, please, please. I think the idea, like there, there would be certain days when I would, my kids would leave and I would kind of feel like I was lingering in this dream state because everything had worked out. You know, the, the movement of the day had been so smooth and so seamless and everything, you know, it's like being on stage and when you connect with the audience and when they're with you from the moment you walk out on stage until the moment you leave and, and you're so, transported to this kind of alternate surreal reality you're so lost in the immediacy and of that experience and you never step out of it and it becomes this just incredible buzzing like beautiful thing and and then it's over and you just have to like sit back and take it all in 
and kind of let it melt off of you because it was that powerful of an experience. So there's something about when you're able to create that connection and that engagement in a classroom that I really do feel is kind of like a work of art. I mean, it's, it's truly, it's like mastery on any level with anything. I mean, when you are functioning at that level and you're able to achieve exactly what you go out to achieve, right? You're, you're impeccable at that point. Like Mm. you are so you're acting with such intention. You're so mindful. You're so present. You're so in control of, of all of the variables that, you know, that truly to me is, is something, is something incredibly creative, right? Though that is creativity in my opinion. I think you've concluded the proof that it is. I mean, and, and you know, I've never played the Stone Pony or Asbury Park, but I know after I <laughs> teach, man, I'm exhausted. How, what is, talk a little bit about that. You know, like the, the, it's not even a letdown. It's just like you've left it all on the field, you know, and then you have to do it again the next day. But is there a kind of mental endurance piece that you were learning as you went? W- were you surprised with how much mental endurance? Is that the right word? Endurance. I think that's excellent. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, there's a ton of mental endurance and the potential for fatigue is, is huge. And, and so many people do get fatigued because I think being that on top of every moment of your day. I mean, that's the thing about teaching is like you are every second, every second, every minute matters just in terms of, you know, the actual structure of a lesson and, and how you are conveying information and then transitioning, you know, just like that from, okay, now we're, now we're moving into something else. And so managing your time is, it can be really, it can be really exhausting. And when you finish the day, like I was saying, just like being on stage and, and treating a performance like a game, right? Like you're an athlete and you're coming out and you're, you know, you're giving everything and, and you're not necessarily, it's not about winning. It's not a competition, but you're thinking of it in the same sort of goal oriented way. At least that's how I think about performance. Like, okay, I have, these are the ways I'm going to evaluate my performance when I'm done and I'm trying to achieve these certain objectives. And so the same thing with a classroom, like you are, you have your, your plan for the day, you have your lesson plan for each actual subject, and then it's all going to come out in this, you know, this, at the end of the day, you're going to evaluate it and like say, okay, how could I have done this better? What, what failed here? What worked? Um, so that same sort of investment that you put in both, you know, mentally and emotionally is, is is incredibly can be incredibly fatiguing, and that's why there's so much teacher burnout. I mean, I think more than so many professions, you know, whether it's nursing or teaching, where you're just so invested and, I, and you have to yeah. work so hard. Um, you know, and I think the difference between you know teaching and performing, right, is that like you you give a shitty performance. I mean, you know, you're you're gonna be, you're gonna beat yourself up, and you may have let down some of your fans, but you know for the most part, like they had a good time and, and it was probably something that was in your head that they didn't notice. And like you walk away and you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do that better. But you know, you didn't, you didn't like fuck up to the point that like you're potentially, 
impacting no, like, a, a life, education. A, a life lesson wasn't lost <laughs> at that moment. No offense. I mean, the sleigh bells and your work is amazing. Uh, we're speaking with Alexis Krauss. No, but, you know, it's interesting about burnout and, and attrition and um, time. I think, you know, a lot of y- young teachers ask me, oh, I'm about to teach any hints or any tips or any strategies. To me, time, like you learn the most about how time works. I learned the most about time and my respect for time grew exponentially when I made a film, when I made a feature film because you don't realize how much mm-hmm. you can do in 15 minutes when the crew says you have 15 Try. minutes to do this you realize you can turn around a battleship in 15 minutes if you have to but also right. you know a lot of young teachers worry oh I'm going to run out of things to say or I'm going to run out of this because you don't know how that human dialogue is going to go but that's the fun part right you know mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's your strategy then there's the other thing because so teaching becomes this third thing that you never planned you know I think the challenge for so many teachers now is is they want to encourage that sort of openness, but they're so locked down by teaching to the test and by, you know, having to teach things that don't really allow for that type of spontaneity and creativity. Um, but I think like anything, if you really if you really think a bit more critically about how you can approach something that seemingly is just going to be rote memorization, you know, there's a way to make it interesting. And, um, but, you know, look, being, being, um, confined by time and being confined by, um, by state standards is, is, is certainly a real reality that, that teachers are facing. And that's very frustrating. It, it is. And resources and lack thereof and too many students in a room. And we, you know, that's our, the next, of the next of our series of that. I would, I mean, you honestly, this talk should be transcribed and published. I'll have my people on it immediately. I don't have people, but if I find them, this will be their first duty. I want to get into this third beat because it's an important thing. I, I think in terms of bringing this into the present tense with you now, a, because I'll say it again, I think once a teacher, always a teacher. You're doing such, to me, innovative teaching still in education. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, t- was was Beauty Lies Truth, was that the first movement into a kind of new idea of what teaching meant for you? Uh, uh, activism, reengaging yourself with education. What made you want to pick up, even though it was almost, it was kind of almost instinctual to start educating again uh, r- with Beauty Lies Truth? I think thinking about utilized truth through the lens of education is, is exactly how it needs to be thought about, and I appreciate you already recognizing that. I mean, I, yes, once a teacher, always a teacher, and I was feeling very much fulfilled by music, but also, like, I had lost that connection to education and to activism, and so I really started thinking, like, okay, within my world within my sphere of influence as a musician as a woman in music like where where can i take this and i found that i was very often being asked by journalists or media like you know what's your beauty routine what's your fashion routine yeah, i'm asked like, that a lot by the way too i mean no if i had a nickel dude sorry i mean i'm asked right, that all, i'm asked that daily <laughs> anyway go on sorry to interrupt <laughs> That was like that was really you know, a strong connection there that was constantly being brought up to me, and I wasn't particularly that interested in 
in, in beauty <laughs> or in fashion. Right. And so right. when I started discovering, I was like, well, but you know, if, if I'm being asked these questions, I, I want to be able to give good answers and I want to be able to, you know, speak and, and sound like I'm interested in, in these things. And so I started thinking about like, okay, my, my personal routine, my personal beauty routine. And, and I started thinking about like, well, if I'm going to give recommendations about a product, like I should pretty much, you know, I should understand a bit more about what this product is. So then I started doing research into, um, you know, into the products I was using every day. And I always thought of myself as someone who's environmentally conscious and who's concerned about chemicals and pesticides. And especially with regards to food, I'm always thinking about, you know, how can I leave in a less of an impact on the planet and, and, and in terms of what I eat. And so when I started realizing that all of these, you know, all of these chemicals that you know, and all these plastics were ending up in our water supply, and and this was just as the result of you know face wash and pe- people wanting their face to feel fresh and tingly every morning. And so I started thinking about beauty products through that lens of like, okay, what what are the products that we're using every day doing not only to our bodies but to the environment? I realized that there was a space here for education, and then it became about celebrating the good things, right? Celebrating right. alternatives, celebrating all these companies that were run by women that were, you know, created because they saw there was a gap there and they wanted to create a better product. And then from there, you know, looking at the farmers, looking at the producers, looking at, you know, tracing back all of these, you know, these products to their to their origination, to their ingredient. And, 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 and so that's where the educational happened. Were the old muscles coming back? Were, were the old teaching muscles coming back? Are there teaching muscles? Or was it just baked in the cake of what you were doing? Uh, the cruelty-free cake, of course. But were you, was it all coming back to you? It definitely awakened my, my... It made me realize how important that element of myself is, how important it is for me to always feel like I am using my knowledge and my influence to to make a change. I don't want to, that, that sounds, I don't necessarily like the way that that sounds, but to, to the, the importance of, of pushing people to think more critically about their daily behaviors and to recognize their own personal power and, and to help them become a part of a larger movement and to feel invested in in the small decisions that they make every day. There were these powerful realizations being made, um, whether it was Slaybell fans or, or, or people that I was connecting with on the blog, this like these aha moments. And and that was really powerful and that was definitely, you know, really inspired me to get back to, you know, creating change. You know, one thing is we throw a couple last thoughts here. Alexis Krauss has been with us generously giving us her time. Again, something she knows about because teachers and time are joined at the hip. But um, one of the common, I think, paranoias about education now is this idea of advocacy. God forbid a teacher should be an advocate. What do you think about that? Is Mm -hmm. there a difference between an advocate and a teacher? Not really, in my opinion. You know, I, I don't know. I I said a lot of things to my students that were probably considered inappropriate. I mean, we had so many, like, why Why am I the only white person that you see every day? You know, why do you have a, a young, white, college-educated person coming into your community to teach you? You know, why, when you walk around Mott Haven, you know, do you not see more white people? Why do you see all these white people when you go to the Upper East Side? You know, why... 
why do you have, you know, this amount of violence in your community? How does that make you feel? You know, what is it like to be an illegal immigrant? What is it like to have a conversation about, you know, STDs and HIV and AIDS with a fourth grader? Like, you know, what is what does celebrating Columbus Day mean when you, you know, when you're when you have Taino and your blood in your in your family? Like, you know, yeah, I think yeah. being an advocate and taught, you know, getting kids invested in in these big social questions. What does it mean to be, you know, all of these things? Like, you can't have a classroom without that impact, especially when, you know, I was teaching. Through a program that came about because of the, you know, because of what was missing in our education system. So, for me, being an advocate, being an activist, you know, talking to my kids about what it's like to live in a shelter and how I can make their lives better, or you know, they can't get help with homework because their parents are working two jobs and they only speak Spanish. Like, you know, these are just this was just a reality of, of being a teacher. So there's. To me, unless you work in this, you know, kind of utopian classroom where, you know, there's no friction, which right. is, you know, not the case anywhere, I can only imagine what it's like for a lot of these kids right now to feel like they're being raised in this kind of environment that's hostile to them. Oh, and gosh. and how can you, how can you, how can you disconnect, you know, politics from education at this point? And, I was just teaching in high school this past six months at, at a, at a arts academy. And there was a shooting while I was teaching. And how do you not lead right. with that? How do you not, how does that not become the next subject, the next day? It was a school shooting, no less. And I talked about it the next day. And one of my students said, you know, no other teacher has talked about this today. I, I, I was right. like, not to put myself above anyone, but I was thinking, what? And, and I said, right. my first question was, and again, I'm not trying to sound like teacher of the year, but I said, how are you guys doing? How are you feeling? What, what it, and, and that was the lesson. And like, you know, sometimes a firm grasp of the obvious is the description of what it being a teacher is. I love that because someone's got to be, but I agree in this time now, how do you not become an advocate or an activist? And, and what's wrong with those words? And we can define them in unique ways. A couple of quick little dangling participles here for our phonics lesson. Um, would you ever go back to school to study something? Would you ever go back to school as a student? Would that ever be curious to you? I thought a lot about that. Yeah, I would. I mean, there are a few things, whether it's conservation biology or wilderness biology or um, geology. There's a lot of things that that really interest me, and I I miss very much being in a in a formal classroom environment. Um, I miss the way that I I think and and that sort of that relationship I I have with professors and that you know motivation to really be disciplined and learn and and you know there's a lot of a lot of things I would love to pursue and I I think maybe there'll be a time for that I mean but I I'm definitely right now kind of going more off of like okay I have certain skills you know and that's when when the outdoors like my 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 love for the outdoors and and being a being a climber and being a hiker and and being an explorer when I realized that I could take that and connect it with my skills as a teacher and integrate it into my you know my experience as a musician and so I for me right now it's kind of like okay how do I with my limited time because I don't have the time or the funds right now to just you know get a degree like how do I how do I take all of these things that I've worked hard at my entire life and combine them? And there's a lot of 
challenge to doing that, but it keeps me thinking. It keeps me constantly guessing on what my next steps are going to be. But yes, I would love to kind of just bury my head in some books and then be back in the classroom environment at some point in my life. It's the difference between being art and art history. You're still in the process of being art. One day you will be art history. You know, you mentioned you have a a specific set of skills. I was thinking you're the Liam Neeson of the outdoor teaching world and your skills uh, are invaluable and uh, as are your brain cells. I guess my last question is, is it ever too late to go back to school? No, no, absolutely not. No, not at all. Um, do people still think that? <laughs> yeah, I, I think about it sometimes. I've I've thought about it, and, and the question says more about the questioner, the self conscious, because there's a self consciousness, no, about going to school at a certain age. Or I mean, you may not have that, but would you concede that it could exist? Sure, I, and I think people do have that fear, I and mean, I think people think like, okay, if I go back to school now, is it going to set me back? How am I going to work? I mean, I think. People are more inhibited by the actual the reality of you know their economic lives or their responsibilities or their obligations to family or to their careers. But I think the idea of just being in school as 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 a person who's you know older than thirty or older than forty. I mean, I, I would hope that we're we're past that point in society where you know that those kind of narrow thoughts about you know pursuing education are are, are beyond us. Um, I think being curious your entire life is so important. I mean, I often find that I, I I consider myself to be quite restless, and I've always wondered if it's detrimental to me or if it's one of my strongest qualities. Because <laughs> it could be both. <laughs> right, I, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I constantly find these other interests and discover these other potential paths, and I want to go down them, and um, and so I, I personally see it as being part of being a well-rounded human, and, and to, that restlessness keeps us motivated. It keeps us curious. It keeps us questioning. It keeps us um, determined to to make a difference and determined to make ourselves into the best version of ourselves. So, um, yeah, I, I would hope that I would hope that people never feel discouraged from going back to school, whether or not they can because whether or not they can get a loan or or afford it. I mean, that's a whole other question, which is ridiculous, but... <laughs> no, well, you know, and, and teachers always leave the door open, so I want to leave the door open for you as a colleague. Uh, if you ever want to do a series of chats or talks publicly about education, I, I would only be too honored to engineer something, and whatever subject matter on an ongoing basis, I would be your humble teacher's assistant, because I think you are a resource, and uh, and I think your educational acumen is uh, unique that, that I've come across, and, and I'll just leave you with one thing. I always tell my students, there's a great poem. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I can send it to you. It's called They Ask Me Why I Teach. And it's written by a teacher. Mm -hmm. And it's this beautiful poem to her students about why she teaches. And I usually read it to my students on the last day. And the last line of the, the poem is, they ask me why I teach. It is because you have been the most splendid company. Alexis Krauss, for the last hour, you have been the most splendid company. I just want to thank you. You are awesome. And again, the invite is open. If you ever want to continue this conversation about teaching and students and education, I'm all yours. I would love that. And thank you for sharing. You too have been splendid company. And it's it's wonderful to, to have this type of conversation and to feel like it's, it's valuable and that there's an audience for it. So thank you for encouraging me to 
to kind of tap back into it and, and, and think about it because um, I think my own kind of insecurities can sometimes sometimes prevent me from, from feeling like I have valuable insights into it. So I appreciate the encouragement. It means a lot. <laughs> Next time I'm in New York, New Jersey, the saltwater taffy is on me. All best to you. We'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks so much, Alexis. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Okay, was it too obvious that I could have just listened to everything she said for the next 10 hours? <laughs> was it too obvious? Did it show too much? <laughs> Professor Freud, your slip is showing. <laughs> hey, like everything else, to be continued. In the meantime, I want to thank Professor Alexis Krauss for being here with us today. I want to thank you for being here with us today, but you can be with us every day. MurmurRadio.com. Download us, subscribe, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Social handles at MSF Murmur. If there is a topic you would like me to address on the show, I will marry your topic to a guest and bring you on the show to chat. Just email me, murmurradio at gmail.com. Wouldn't it be cool to attend class virtually? I think so. Class dismissed.